0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview where we meet the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week we're going to talk to Samir Rahim, our very own literary editor, and these days an urbane figure who lives in the world of letters. But as he's written for us this summer, things were very different when he was a boy of nine and found himself taken prisoner by none other than Saddam Hussein. In his extraordinary first-hand tale of what it feels to be like one of those things that we in the media so casually call a human shield. There are walk-on parts for Margaret Thatcher, Cat Stevens, and a second-hand Fiat Punto, And we'll get to all of that. But first, Samir, what on earth were you doing in Iraq in the first place?
2: Good question, Tom. Um, It's it's, I had a slightly unusual upbringing uh, in comparison to lots of other people, perhaps. Um, I spent most of my teenage years... Uh, summers and winters, um, mainly in Arab dictatorships uh, or Middle Eastern dictatorships. Uh, So in 1990, um, uh, our family's Shia Muslim. So uh, there are a lot of pilgrimage sites in Iraq. People may be familiar with names like Najaf and Karbala uh, in the Shia south of the country. So um, we simply went on a sort of uh, pilgrimage uh, there. And lots of other people we knew had done the same thing. Uh, Saddam's Iraq was uh, a brutal place, but it was relatively safe, particularly, one would have thought, if you had uh, a British or American passport, because it was well known that Saddam and the West were uh, quite tight. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we were. We were off to um, do visit pilgrimage sites, visit various holy figures, ayatollahs in uh, Najaf uh, and all the rest of it. Um, being a nine-year-old, I didn't really quite understand where we were going or why we were doing it. Um, you just accepted it as, as something that happened. But then, uh, yeah. in, in the beginning of August, August 2nd, I think it was, things changed quite dramatically. So, I
1: mean, the, the dates here are very important, aren't they? I mean, it's exactly 30 years ago, August 1990. As you've just said, um, we forget too easily now that Saddam Hussein was considered an ally of the West, the sort of bulwark against... Iran, which was the great demon in those days but then what happened
2: well on august the 2nd um we were wandering around but we mainly finished our, our duties then and i think we were we were on our way back in a few days time we were planning to we walked out into the streets, and my father and i and um there were soldiers firing up into the air in a typical um, sort of Arab-style celebration. And we didn't know what had happened. We had assumed that, at that point, that maybe Saddam had been overthrown, um, which was, you know, a slightly scary thing, but we we didn't we didn't know until we went back to the hotel and looked at the news and we saw that tanks had rolled into Kuwait. And so Iraq had invaded Kuwait and reclaimed it as the 13th province of Iraq or something like that. I think Kuwait... Uh, uh, had lent Saddam quite a lot of money. He thought he could just reclaim it, a little ego-boosting war, perhaps. And because he'd previously, not that long ago, uh, gassed 5,000 Kurds to death at Halabja, and the Western response was a, a shrug of the shoulders, he thought he could get away with it. Um, but it turned, in, turned into a, a massive miscalculation. Um, and within a few days, the West, Western countries like Britain and America had condemned him Uh, for the invasion, and told them to get out.
1: Okay, so you saw these kind of, I guess, celebratory shots in the street, thought something was up, uh, turned on the news, found out what was really going on, but how long did it take for that big change in the international situation to manifest itself in terms of your experience of the holiday?
2: So a lot of the the piece, uh, I sort of reconstruct what was going on outside the country. Um, a lot of which we weren't really uh, aware of. You know, of course, you've got to remember, of course, no, no internet. And the TV was uh, 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 Iraqi TV. They didn't tell you the whole truth. We did have a little transistor radio, which we listened to the World Service on. And the World Service was a, a real lifeline for us because we could actually work out what was happening. I think within about within about a week or so, there'd been condemnations of the United Nations. We were talking to other people. We were in a group, actually, a group of about 20 or 30 people. And the leader of our group, uh, tourist group, said, "Look, we need to just get out of here as soon as possible. The airports had been closed, um, but we knew there were people who who had driven to the Jordanian border and got across the border to Amana and you could fly home safely from there. Um, the border is a very long one, and it and apparently it wasn't very well defended because all the troops had gone into Kuwait. So people we know were just driving straight across. So so we got in the we got in the." the bus and tried to get to the border. And I think it was like three or four hour drive. Um, But when we got there, we were actually stopped. And this is where it sort of, in a way, gets, you know, the the interesting thing about it for me was how it's made me reflect upon the the arbitrary nature of identities. Um, Because at the border, we had people in our group who had British passports, who had American passports, um, and we had people who were East African Indians um, who had Tanzanian passports and Kenyan passports. My own mother had a joint citizen, Kenyan-British citizenship, but she decided that time to go on her British passport. But we were divided, and we were divided into the people who were British and American— and we were told to stay and go back to baghdad and the people who were kenyan or tanzanian or belonged to countries which were uh, developing or you know in some kind of third world alliance somehow with iraq were were told to leave and it was such an interesting reversal of the usual hierarchy of privilege because usually when you're going around the world a british passport will accrue you no know, respect um it will you know it's the sort of the brute geopolitical power it means you can't mess around with a british person as much as you can um someone from a weaker country but uh saddam in his perverse way wanted to reverse that dynamic um and he wanted um, especially to target um um those western countries who had uh, who had condemned him
1: so at this point you're realizing you're going back to um baghdad on the bus are you feeling Panic, like I mean, you're young, so you might not understand. But does it feel like things are kind of under control, or does it feel like you really have got no idea what's going on?
2: My mum and dad, I think, were definitely panicking and speaking to my mum about it. She was very, very anxious. You know, in our family, I didn't talk about this in the piece actually, but there are our family knows what it's like when suddenly political changes happen very fast. My dad, who grew up in Zanzibar, and there was a revolution there in 1962, which effectively meant that everyone in the family uh, either had to leave or within a few years was sort of kicked out, basically. Um, a very settled society can suddenly change extremely quickly. So um, they were sort of aware of that in uh, in that way. I think um, my sister, who was 14 at the time, she was much more aware of it. She was also extremely ill at the time, just with a stomach upset and various other things, um, which, which didn't help. Um, but yeah, no, it, it was bizarre. And we ended up, um, being put into a grand hotel called the Mansour Melia, um, on the banks of, uh, uh, the river Tigris. And we were sort of put into a corridor along with everyone else in our group. Um, and we weren't allowed to leave that corridor there were guards at the end of the door, taken out for meals at various times, but, but essentially we had a month of just sitting and waiting. Um, to see what fate Saddam had in store for us.
1: And you mentioned in the piece that there was, you know, uh, at least on one occasion, access to the swimming pool and they were kind of parading in some sense, you know, what luxury conditions they could keep you in, but those conditions also changed quite quickly, didn't they?
2: Yes, and this is something, again, your hand memory plays tricks on you. Um, so I remember that we used to go swimming all the time um, and I remember going swimming in the in, in the pool there. Um, and Tarakazi's, uh, the Iraq's uh, deputy prime minister, it, he said, "Well, you know, hostages. There, if there were hostages, they wouldn't be swimming in swimming pools and sitting around partying, and they're having a great luxury time." You know, the fiction were, was that we were guests of Saddam Hussein. Um, but in subsequent researches, looking in newspapers and and, and uh, books written about um, the incident, it. it It was actually only for two two or three days that we were allowed to do that and we were photographed for effectively propaganda purposes. Um, I do remember it was sort of surreally sinister um, because we were sitting around this pool or diving into it and there were these sort of Iraqi goons with walkie-talkies wrapped in newspapers wandering around looking at us the whole time. It was an odd sort of um, conspicuous inconspicuousness, you know, almost like They wanted to be seen as us being sort of looked on and um, it gave you a little taste of what it must have been like to live in Saddam's Iraq where, um, you know, being spied on and being careful of everything that you said uh, was so, um, you know, such a a key part of Ba'athist dictatorship.
1: Um, And um, did the, I'm sure this would register quite highly with a nine-year-old, were you given okay food and did that also get worse during the month?
2: Yeah, no, it started off fine, um, and then but I don't remember it much at the beginning, but I remember by the end there was just basically no, like the the food was you know the bread was mouldy, the food was um, wasn't particularly nice. We did have quite a lot of interactions with the Iraqis who served us um, at the um, at the hotel or cleaned the rooms, and those were some of the most memorable moments really because there were so many of them were very very kind to us. My mum does. Remember um, one of the women who cleaned the uh, cleaned the room, just bringing in various creams or various, I think, snacks even for us because you know we were losing weight and, um, and because the food wasn't very good. Um, a great risk to herself because in in, in Iraq, any kind of uh, breaking of the rules could lead to you know um, punishment, imprisonment, and all the rest of it. So there was a great humanity in in those uh, those people we uh, we met and um, the guards at the end of the. Corridor not so much, I have to say.
1: Um, but your parents had warned you even before you got there, didn't they, that like this was a place where you might need to be careful. Do you remember just having a sense of jitters even before the invasion?
2: Absolutely. Um, so um, as I mentioned before, we're we're Shia Muslims, so that that means that you're immediately um, under suspicion in Iraq because uh, Saddam was a Baathist and you know, nominally Sunni and whatever his religious beliefs are otherwise, he certainly hated Shias because he felt like um, they had sided with Iran during the, uh, the Iran-Iraq war, and also because Shias were the majority of the people in um, Iraq um, and had never been comfortable with, with him ruling them. So we had a sort of alliance with that. We knew someone who had a family friend who had visited Iraq for similar reasons, for pilgrimage reasons, and had, because he had stayed some time in Iran as well, had been arrested and actually imprisoned and held in awful conditions and tortured. And he had told us about all this. So there was that sense of nervousness. That was that sense of, you know, who we were, um, uh, did define us in some ways. we felt an anomaly. We felt like a sort of um, a weird sort of in between people in a way, because um, I think I'm sure when Saddam decided to capture all the uh, British and American hostages, um, you know, there was B.A. cabin crew. There were engineers who worked in Kuwait. There were uh, British people who had, uh, you know, were moving through the country expats. He, he was looking for, you know, basically white English telegenic people who he contorted uh, George W. Bush and Margaret Thatcher with. I'm sure it didn't even occur to him that there would be such a thing as a, a British Muslim, let alone British Shia Muslims, who are uh, in his country. So when we were captured, we, had, we were in this sort of in-between state where we were sort of slightly ignored, I think. We were dumped in the, 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 the hotel but other more sort of valuably telegenic hostages were given much worse conditions than us. And I think it's important to emphasise that we got away really quite lightly in comparison with others. You know, Many were moved to uh, camps next to military installations or dams. Many were beaten up. Many had um, some, some uh, horrible experiences there. Um, in a way, our identity was a sort of crack that we sort of You know, it was it was a protection in some ways, but also the Shia aspect meant that we were also nervous because you know if he'd found out that we were knew sort of knew that we were Shia because we'd gone on this pilgrimage, but if he suddenly started to care about it, that could have got more tricky.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
2: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: about the kind of diversity of the foreigners who happened to be in Iraq at this time. Have you got any idea what, how many of them there were overall? And then have you got um, a clear story about how in the end they started to get out, including you and your family, of course?
2: Yeah, there were, there were actually hundreds of us. Um, the, the people, if you read the accounts, um, there's a book by Tim Lewis called The Human Shield, which is quite interesting. Um, the the people who were in Kuwait, there were a lot of ex- British expat workers uh, in Kuwait living on compounds. And because they were actually at the brunt of the invasion, they had a slightly different kind of experience. A couple of them tried to leave by going into the desert as well and trying to get to the border, as we did. Uh, people were shot dead. Uh, British uh, citizens were shot dead. Uh, and um, you know what Saddam was doing with us, you know... He's such, in a way, a fascinating figure. And I don't know, I've been watching the documentary, the brilliant harrowing documentary, um, Once Upon a Time in Iraq, uh, on the BBC. I advise anyone in listening to this to to watch it immediately because it's completely brilliant. And a lot of that is trying to analyse Saddam, in a way. And he's both incredibly cunning uh, and really quite intelligent in some ways, but also just he didn't really have a long-term strategy other than just... Trying to capture people and create fear. I think he thought that the the West, once they saw their people under lock and key, they would crumble and give in to him. In fact, if you read the accounts, uh, George W. Bush says things like, "Oh, you know, well, yes, the hostages are important, but we don't really know what to do with them, and we don't negotiate with uh, you know uh, foreign states or people who take hostages." And um, uh, Margaret Thatcher tried to shame him by saying that, you know. Uh, real leaders don't hide behind the um, uh, the skirts of women and children. Saddam, I think he enjoyed the theatre of it as much as anything else. Um, there's this footage, which we did see while we were in Iraq, of um, some British, British hostages being introduced to him. Um, there's a famous picture of a, a, a six-year-old boy called Stuart Lockwood having his hair, hair patted rather sinisterly uh, by Saddam. Um, and they were sort of there appealing to him in, in person. Um, there was a thought, by the way, that um, I, as a nine-year-old, could maybe you know uh, uh, go and appeal to Sazam in person as well, and uh, somehow you know as you know as, as though he was sort of a caliph of old, go and so, sort of um, offer ourselves up uh, in obeisance to him. But that that never happened. He started to get challenged at some of these meetings. Apparently, um, some of the 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 the, the People are saying, oh, why are you keeping us here? You know, um, oh, we've got bad conditions. And, you know, so, so he was put under pressure in that way. And what actually happened was a slightly sort of bizarre form of celebrity diplomacy is ultimately what got us out. Um, so, first of all, he did uh, listen to Margaret Thatcher, um, if you ever heard her saying that, and he did release women and children. And that's when we, me, my mother, and my sister left at the end of August. But my dad, in was a way,. Kept on- from
1: here was that then the worst bit because you're left to go home and you've got no idea then really no idea when your dad's going to get out i guess and 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 that then you know the, the idea that that you've got this family it's in a different place it's not that anymore it's that your family's been for the moment torn apart
2: yeah the split up was was the moment when i think my parents i mean like they'd done very very well in controlling their emotions protecting us from their own fear And trying to normalize everything, but I think it was it was at that point I think that it you know I don't remember actually anything about us leaving the hotel. But then what we did was we went back to the hotel in the evening. We were due to fly out the next day, but my mum wanted to see my dad again, and so she went back to the hotel with us and said that she um, had forgotten something, Um, and they let us back in. And my dad, to his total surprise, saw us there. And you know there was an emotional moment when we when we met up. Yeah, no, it was tough. It was tough, that separation and somehow the unknowable nature of it, you know, what was actually going to happen? You know, would Saddam just, you know, what would have he had done? He could have just executed everyone, you know, and in a way he wouldn't have been in a worse position because he was going to be invaded anyway. Um, uh, So that was, that was a struggle. But again, you say we had this sort of weird sort of celebrity diplomacy as I was saying. So, and because the governments couldn't negotiate directly, various figures started to come over. People with either associations with Iraq or ex-politicians. So Willie uh, Brandt came over to negotiate with him. Tony Benn came over and had a chat with Saddam. Jesse Jackson came over. And each one coming over uh, sort of brought home Edward Heath, of course, who, uh, who I think had connections with Iraq in some way. Um, each one got a sort of legitimising meeting with Saddam and he could film that and feel ter- terribly self-important. Uh, and it's a sort of reward for them uh, to keep the sort of pantomime going. He, used to, he sent back a few hostages and freed a few with, um, uh, uh, with them. Um, and so uh, for us, it was uh, Yusuf Islam, or Yusuf as I think he's known now, he's the, uh, the former singer uh, Cat Stevens. Who was and still is a quite a prominent figure in the British Muslim community, obviously had an aura of celebrity um and he went over there as he said very cannily to appeal to the the Muslim conscience of Saddam Hussein to free these fellow muslims and uh, and all the rest of it and um and that's eventually in in october what what happened he came over and then he he brought back a good five or six people, including including my dad. So just to add to the surreal nature of the whole thing, it was Yusuf Islam who, uh, who freed my father. And so when you did
1: get back, um, you say in the piece, I think, that times were actually quite hard. It wasn't quite happy ever ever after the thing. You started getting into fights at school, which I find quite hard to imagine.
2: Yeah, but it was quite unusual. It's, it's funny to know how something like this affects you and why I never... I've never really written about this and I've never really talked about it very much. And in fact, since I've written the piece, friends of mine have either said to me, well, I didn't even know any of that happened to you or, oh, I've forgotten that happened to you. I just sometimes I imagine that it didn't really happen because you never really talk about it. And and it was, you know, our our situation was by no means as harrowing and as horrible as others. Uh, hostages, and really nothing in comparison to what the Iraqi people had to go through. So I suppose I'd always been a bit nervous about writing about it because I didn't really want to claim myself as a sort of, um, you know, victim of Saddam, as uh, in comparison to the the real victims. I, I think, but I suppose it did have uh, it did have some kind of influence on me. As a family, we simply decided not to talk about it in the way that families do. We started to refer to it as the time we got stuck in Iraq. You know, so we just got stuck there, and then we were released. Um, I think because I was so young, I maybe I couldn't really articulate it very well what what I'd been through um, and um, what I'd seen. Um, You know, there was no counselling offered or anything like that. And my sister is now a head teacher, and she would she said to me, you know, now you know for pupils pet dies, they will offer them, counselling, you know, there, there is a lot more awareness of uh, of these things now. And so we just sort of try to damp it down. But then I do look back on it now. So yes, I did have a really troubled year at school that year, and you know, and, um, you know, getting to fights and all the rest of it. So there must have been some sort of anger or, or whatever. I think the biggest influence on me just just looking back was an awareness um of the role of uh, what propaganda can do to you as a person you can start believing propaganda in fact if you're living in a situation like that and we were terrified of what we you know what we were allowed to say and what we weren't allowed to say when we were there so my parents thought the easiest thing to do was to basically teach us and tell us to say that you know Saddam was a great person blah 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 and we and that's what we we could say and think and and if you repeat something enough eventually you you start to believe it so there's a sort of weird doubleness there so you sort of know what you're doing and the situation you're in is terrible and this person is is an evil despot at the same time your security is based on sort of trying to assuage them and appease them so i think i've always been interested in um you know matters of uh you know political propaganda and uh, how politics works in that way and maybe maybe it's because of that
1: and uh, finally just in terms of the aftermath you do mention there was at some point uh some compensation i promised in the intro we'd get to this fiat Punto. um when did that arrive
2: i mean it took ages um so you know as people know the iraq war happened the first gulf war um, and then but Saddam was still in power then there were sanctions against Saddam um, and there was always this UN process where the, the the oil assets of the country would be used to offer us um, something like a financial compensation for uh, uh, for our experience and we used to get letters from you know uh, rather sort of uh, important looking United Nations letterheaded <laughs> missives through the post um, saying you know we've you know more progress and you know we're going to be getting the compensation to you soon um my father passed away in the year 2000 um 10 years after this um and they still hadn't had any compensation then um so but i think about two or three years afterwards there was a figure that my dad got and then eventually came to um came to us and i and and the other the rest of us got smaller smaller amounts um, I think I think I got like something like fifteen hundred pounds or two thousand pounds or something. I can't remember. Um but anyway, I used the money to buy my first car, which was a Fiat Punto. Um so some compensation at least for uh for that weird experience.
1: Samir, thanks very much for sharing all of that. I really would urge people to read the piece, which is fantastic. It's on the website, or even better, if you buy our summer double issue, you can luxuriate in reading it in print. Um Uh, but that's it for the prospect interview for this week if you enjoyed the podcast please do leave us a rating or a review uh goodbye stay safe and we'll see you again next week